You may be seated. Let me pray for us one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, you're the great prophet, the one who always speaks what is true, whose words are trustworthy and life-giving. And so we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would be the one who delivers with great power your word into our hearts. May your spirit make our hearts tender, our ears listening ears, and give us eyes to see your glory so that we might rejoice that we have such a great Savior for such great sinners like us. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, having a mission statement is pitched as the key to success. You can't pick up a business book without at some point them telling you, like, if you're going to be successful in this world, you really need to have a key and compelling mission statement. You might have even asked, you know, what's your personal mission statement? You can't be personally successful in this world unless you have a, a clear and compelling mission statement. If you want to be big and ambitious, you've got to have a big, ambitious statement of mission. So nobody wants to be nobodies in the world, right? So that tugs at us. And mission statements are usually organized around some big, compelling We're going to change the world kind of mission statement. So Google exists, like their core existence in this world is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. You can argue whether the usefulness of it's being played out, but that's a pretty big, compelling mission statement. We're going to organize all of the world's information. Nike's mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world, right? If you're going to be a world-changing organization, you have to have a clear and compelling world-changing mission statement. Well, this is Advent season, and we're looking at the mission statements of Jesus. Advent means coming, and oftentimes the church has set aside the four Sundays leading up to Christmas in anticipation of Christmas Day when the Son of God took on human flesh And came into the world to put the world right again. So we are asking, what are the mission statements of Jesus? Why did he come? And we're looking at those through the lens of five of Jesus' own statements that start or end this way. I have come. I've come. Last week we saw, last said, I have come to seek and save the lost. In verse 28 here in Matthew chapter 20 is our next mission statement of Jesus. I have come. It's the big compelling thing that Jesus has come in this world-changing power as the Son of God. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to really key in on this idea, this last idea that he had come. To give his life as a ransom for many. One author said it, one commentator said it this way. This is perhaps the most crucial teaching of Jesus concerning his self-understanding. And I don't think that's an overstatement, right? That this is, when it comes to Jesus' sense of what his mission in the world was, this is probably the most important of those sayings. I have come, the Son of Man has come, not to be served, but to serve by and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a, the timing of this particular statement, really, to get its context is important. Understand where Jesus was on his ministry. He was in Jericho, which is where he was last week. 
And the reason he was in Jericho was because he had been traveling from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. He was steadily moving towards Jerusalem where he would die on the cross, particularly in the passage just before in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus sits his disciples down, and for the third time, he tells them in the most clear way what lies ahead. So if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 20. We're going to Jerusalem. Like, this is where we're headed. We're going to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. So we pick up verse 20 with then. Then. It's a conjoining word. It joins what he just said, like he couldn't have been more clear. Like this is we're going to Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me condemn me to death, and then kill me after they mock me and flog me, and we're going to die by crucifixion. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to his sons kneeling before him and asks this question. "Um, Can my son sit at your right hand and your left? Like this is a, they're asking, and and really probably what's going on is that James and John are, are using their mother to ask their question because Jesus turns from her and begins to address them. You can, you, could you really drink the cup that you're asking to drink? And, and their request at the heart of their request is this. We want to sit in places of power and influence. We want to be important people. We want to be important people because you're going to establish a kingdom. And we want to sit in the places of power and influence at your right hand and at your left hand. But Jesus just flips it. It's like, I'm not, that's not the direction that I'm going. That's not my mission. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, which would be a per, pretty phenomenal statement. I mean, in a world where men get power and they use it to abuse others, we keep seeing this theme throughout the news where men in power or politicians in power, expect people to cater to their every needs and use their power to oppress and abuse others. Jesus flips that on its head. This is a mark of of great leadership. What he's really asking, he's really saying is there's a distinguishing mark of Jesus's leadership. And it's, it's what distinguishes him from other great leaders of the world. It's not just the fact that he's willing to give his power away and protect people with his power rather than use and abuse people with his power. What he says next is really the distinguishing mark of him as the leader of God's movement in the world. It is what marks him radically different than any other religious leader. And here it is. The Son of Man came to be served, not to serve. And, and this is really what marks Jesus as different, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if this is the most crucial teaching about Jesus' self-understanding, we really need to ask what he means by this word ransom, because it's a very loaded word. If, it, if that is what distinguishes Jesus from every other great religious leader in this world, I mean... 
survey the other world religions, you will find them saying similar things, maybe not exactly the same, oftentimes at the core very different, but service is kind of a big deal amongst world religions. But what distinguishes Jesus is that his particular kind of service was to give his life as a ransom for many. Most of the time when we hear the word ransom, it's in context of kidnapping or hostage situations. A a kidnapper might leave a ransom note that details this. We, if you want them back, this is what a price that will be need to be paid in exchange, in exchange for a cost. Their freedom will come at great price, and you're going to have to bear it. It emphasizes both um, in the original language, it emphasizes the, the loosing or the liberating. That's what ransom means in the original language. But it really emphasizes the cost at which liberation comes, the cost of the freedom. In the Old Testament, which often when the Old Testament got translated from Hebrew into Greek so that the common people could read their Bibles as they are speaking the Greek language, the word that often is translated to ransom carries the idea of redemption, which gets us to cost again. Like If you're going to redeem something uh, that you've pawned, you're going to have to pay back the redemption price in order to gain the freedom of the thing that was pawned. If you're going to redeem a coupon, somebody else is going to have to pay the cost for that. When we redeem, we emphasize cost. And so if Jesus gave himself as a ransom, he paid a price for our freedom. But that begs the question, what are we ransomed from? If he's paying a price to ransom us from something that was holding us captive. What is it that is holding us captive? Well, again, we have to dig into our Old Testament because that was the Bible that Jesus had before him. He is a Bible-saturated man. He's got his Old Testament before him. And to understand the idea of ransom, you have to dig back into Jesus' own Bible and commonly in the Old Testament. use of the word group that gets translated as ransom is used in the context of God's wrath. For instance, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, Israel is to take a census of all of the nation of Israel. And each person is to give a ransom, a shekel, a small coin. It was expense. They are to pay this price so that the plagues that fell on Egypt and God's wrath won't fall on Israel. They are to ransom themselves from God's wrath. Likewise, a murderer. Some people could ransom themselves from trouble, but a murderer could not ransom himself from the death penalty. This was the wrath that was to fall on him for the taking of another's life. Justice for his sins must be paid. And so here is the context. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom from the wrath of God that was on us for our sins. It really gives us a sense of the travesty, really, doesn't it, of our sins? It's hard to take them lightly when it required the death of God's own Son to pay the ransom price to give us freedom from God's wrath, his wrath has been provoked by us. They'll be unleashed in his fury and no one will be able to escape it because while he is gracious and kind, he will in no way let sin go unpunished. And so here we are born 
into this world, every man, woman, and child born under the wrath of God, needing to be freed by the ransom of another, the infinite God. And this is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? The infinite God satisfies his infinite wrath with his own son. This is what he came into the world for. There's exchange that goes on with sin. John Stott says it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. My way, my kingdom, my resources. You serve me. Look around the world. That's what you see. Storyline being played over and over and over again. But it's also what you see in your own household. That's my toy. She's in my room. I want my way. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The world has to revolve around me. But the essence, he goes on and says, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man claims the prerogative that belongs to God alone. That's what sin is. This is what the gospel is. God accepts the penalty that belongs to man alone. And there is only one worthy enough to pay the ransom to free many. As the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for, for many. Now it's easy to skip over the word for here because it's, it's really loaded in the original language. It's a throw-off word in the, in the English. We kind of skip over it and don't even notice when we say for sometimes. And for can go in a lot of different directions. I might say I'm for you, which means I'm on your side. Or for you means you get the, you're going to get this thing that I'm, I'm giving. This is a gift. It's for you. You're going to benefit from it. But the word here in the original language is much more loaded because it, it's significant. It carries the language, the idea of substitution. You could, use, you could actually translate it instead of the Son of Man came. To give his life as a ransom instead of the many giving away their lives as a ransom. We use for this way in the English language, kind of the language of substitution. I, I recently went to Kroger and used ClickList, which if you've not used, is glorious. You sit in your pajamas at home, make your shopping list, drive up, and they put the groceries into your car. It's an amazing thing. But one of the items that I ordered, they didn't have in stock. And so she upgraded me. And this is what she said. We didn't have what you ordered, and so I've given you a a better item. I've given you this item for the one you ordered. And what she meant is I made a substitution on your behalf. You, you You ordered one thing, but for that item, I've given you another. That's what's going on here. The Son of Man came to give his life. Instead of the many giving their lives, the Son of Man came to pay our ransom by substituting himself on the cross. And as a result, he ransomed the many, and the many are free. He did nothing wrong. This is Horatius Bonner. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything, so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. I mean, can you you imagine the joy of Mary 
as she held in her hands her innocent little boy covered in blood from birth. And she called him by her, his name, Jesus, which means God saves. And heard echoing in her ear the announcements of the angels, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He was born in blood so that he could die in blood so that with his blood he could ransom us. And I want to do two things with this. I really want to go two directions because the Bible takes this idea of ransom in two directions. One is an encouragement and the other is a challenge. So two encouragements, two challenges running ahead with, with the ransom of Jesus. This gives us true freedom. The death of Jesus paying the debt of God's wrath so that we could be free gives us real true freedom. This is by God's design. He paid the ransom for our sins. He's the one, if the son came into the world, he was sent by the father. This is God's design, satisfying his own wrath. This week, the story gets told again and again, as I've said, of men in power using their power to sexually abuse women. And Matt Lauer lost his job this week. He was fired as a longtime co-host. Savannah Guthrie sat there visibly shocked if you saw the announcement, just visibly shocked by what was going on. I thought she said something really profound when she said this. We're trying to reconcile love for a man who did really bad things. And you see the way that God reconciled that was to send his son to atone for our sins for the really bad things that we've done and thus ransom his wrath by paying the ransom with the blood of his own son. Where wrath and love meet and wrath is satisfied, only love remains. And if God is the one that paid the ransom from his wrath, then you're really free. Really free. If God has satisfied his wrath, why do we walk around thinking when we sin, we need to do more ourselves? One debt was paid with one man's blood, and it was a ransom for many. Not just many people, many sins. So we're free now to walk where there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really hard for us. It's really hard for us because it just confronts our, our pride. And this is where the gospel humbles us. And we're going to have to put away our pride if we're going to walk in this kind of freedom against John Stott here. This is where we default to. We insist on paying for what we have done because we cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing somebody else to pay for us. That notion... That this somebody else should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent, rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. And yet this is the pathway to lasting joy. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord does not count iniquity anymore. Why will he not? He's paid for it. 
with the blood of his own son. What else could he demand from us? Is there a, is there a greater is there a greater payment that could be made with our little trifles of good works that we give to him? And he not only looks and says, those are worthless to me. He says, you don't need them. I've paid the debt. And so when the devil accuses you of all the wrong things that we do, and they're a lot, you look him in the eye and say, the father holds no debt against me anymore for the ransom has been paid and I am free and our ransom in Jesus also gives us a grounded sense of worth right because we intuitively attach our value and our identity together right so if we're valuable people then we feel valuable we measure our value based oftentimes on what people are willing to give us or spend on us. So a bride-to-be will intuitively measure her fiancé's love by how much he spends on the ring. Children measure their father's love not by the toys he's willing to buy them, but what he's willing to give up for them, to be with them. We just intuitively tie our sense of identity and worth to what someone is willing to spend on us. So we pursue fame and honor. We think those people are really worth something in the world because people are willing to, to give up a lot in life to pursue them. And if that is true, we can look at the ransom in Jesus and say, what great worth am I? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? So Paul brings this ransom language in in dealing with the Corinthian church. He borrows it, brings it in, because he's addressing the Corinthian church, which had a lot of diversity in it. It was economically diverse. It had bond servants and masters in the church. Think employee-employer relationship, the rich and the poor. And he's addressing them. And in the same breath, he then turns and starts addressing the married and the singles within the church as well. And, and it hinges on this one statement because he's recognizing that the most basic struggle between the rich and the poor, the employee and the employer, the slaves and the bond servants and the masters and the singles and the married, the basic most core struggle in all of that is a sense of our worth. And it plays out in attaching our worth to our relationship status or attaching our worth to our career status. And so he takes them back to the ransom price paid for them. You were bought with a price. Don't become bondservants of men. And in that context, he means don't become slaves to other people's opinions. If you really want to be valuable in this world, look up at the cross of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed his own son out of love for you, if you see what God was willing to do to ransom you with his one and only son, then I'll know great worth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is why the incarnation of Jesus is just so essential, right? The one who paid the ransom had to be fully God because only God could fix such deep brokenness and at the same time give us such great worth 
The price paid was by the Son, who by the Father's direction took on flesh to pay your ransom. And so your value, if you belong to Jesus Christ, your value is not in your career or your bank account or your children or your relationship status. And its worth is fixed and permanent and extravagant. First Peter chapter 1, you are ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. This Christ was God because he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in his last times for your sake. What great love created such a great remedy. And what great value you have. Your worth now should be measured against the infinite payment that God made as a ransom by the blood of his own son. Freedom, worth, here's our challenges. Give us a mission now. Right? So Paul brings in this language of ransom and gives us a mission on how to use our bodies. Because Jesus ransomed you means that you are now owned by him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now glorify God in your body. Particularly here he's dealing with sexuality. Wherever our struggle is sexually, because we're all sexually broken, the, the starting point is now... I don't get to use my body for my own pleasures. My body is incredibly valuable because it has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ who paid the ransom for my sin and now owns me and I use my body in service to him, not to serve myself anymore. So students and singles, that means abstaining from sex until marriage because your body is not your own. You don't get to use it however you want. It's been bought with the blood of of Jesus Christ. So use it carefully. You're his slave and use it carefully to bring glory to him. But also it applies to married people because when you use your body in the marriage bed, God is pleased. It changes the dynamics of the marriage bed where it's no longer just about me, but I'm, I'm giving my body away to, to the spouse that God has given me all to the glory of his name. And he gets to use me He gets to use my body towards that end because it's his. So Paul takes it and applies it to sexuality. I mean, this is this far-ranging thing, but then he also applies it here in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus applies it to what to do with our ambitions. And I'll close with this. This is our last challenge because this gives us a sense of what to do with our ambitions. Ambition's not a bad thing. I mean, this chapter really is about ambition. They... James and John, they're using their status as being the closest ones to Jesus. Peter, James, and John, there's Jesus' inward, inward group, right? He, John is the one that says of himself, I'm the one that Jesus loved, reclined his head at Jesus' chest. They're the close ones. Peter, James, and John, the one that Jesus takes up to the mountain when he's transfigured. So they're using their status for greatness. Their ambition they're ambitious. It's not a terrible thing. Ambition's not a terrible thing. Uh, arguably, ambition, the desire for greatness, is just the, the outworking of the creation mandate. God told us 
take this small garden and make it cover the whole earth. That's ambitious. That's greatness. This is what sin does. Sin corrupts. It twists things. And so we often unhealthily tie our ambition to our sense of identity. And we think, I am worth what I can accomplish. And as Jesus often does, he takes the natural desires and he redirects them. It's sort of like a spiritual judo master. It takes the momentum. Like, you want to be ambitious? Great. Be ambitious. But the gospel is going to flip your ambition over. It's going to redirect it. The Son of Man came to give his life as a a ransom for many. There's your template for what to do in this world and how to live your life. This is what greatness now looks like. It flips things over. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. And he takes it deeper. The word there for you you deacons, it's, it's the word for deacons. If you want to be great, then be a servant like a deacon. Watch your deacons. They're the great ones in the church. They're doing great things because they're serving other people without getting noticed. That's the way of the kingdom. And then he says, if you want to be great, you've got to become, if you want to be first, you've got to become a slave. If I want to make a big impact and be somebody awesome, then I need to pursue the downward track of being a slave. Now get this. Who notices and appreciates slaves? I mean, the answer is Jesus, the king. The king who became a slave and gave his life as a ransom for many. He says, uh, you, the world may not notice a single thing that you do. Oh, but you get the twinkling of my eye when you pursue the pathway of a slave to others. When you clean up the toys or your kids' room for the thousandth time, it's tempting to think, they're just treating me as a slave. Instead, you get to think, I'm working out the gospel in front of them because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to pay the price that they were supposed to pay. He paid the price that I was supposed to pay. He did the work that I was supposed to do. And so... It liberates you. Can you imagine just how this would liberate you from the power dynamics that are often at play in your jobs or in your marriage? Which is often a power play of who's going to be first, who's going to be the most worthy, and who's going to get the places of power. And Jesus says, the gospel changes that. It flips it upside down. The first and the greatest are the ones who are willing to become slaves, and no one will notice, and they'll work their tail off, and someone else will get the benefit. But that's the way of the gospel, because it's what he's done for us. That is a mission statement worth pursuing. It will change things, radically change things. Let me close with this illustration. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton uh, reached Antarctica. He set his mind, I'm going to the hardest place on on the earth to reach. A year prior, and he succeeded, you know the story, or some of you know the story, he succeeded, he reached the South Pole. The year before... Someone set off to reach the North Pole. That was an easier route, and it was an easier expedition than the South Pole trek. But the easier expedition failed. And here's why. Because the captain valued success reaching the goal rather than caring for people. 
And so he consistently communicated his ultimate objective. Get to the North Pole at all costs. And what he meant was, and he said this. So the captain said, even the lives of the crew are secondary to accomplishing this great work. And what happened is his group degenerated into a band of selfish, mean-spirited, cutthroat, individualists, and all 11 of them ended up dead. Shackleton's group, though, faced a very similar challenge. Challenges were cold, food shortages, stress, and anxiety. And it was a much more difficult route. Here's what Shackleton said. This is why they succeeded. Because at their lowest point, our ultimate goal was to secure the safety of each other. And the well-being of his team drove him to put others first. Shackleton even gave away his mittens, his boots, and volunteered for the longest night's watch. And he won. It seems so expensive, doesn't it, to live this way? It's going to cost so much, but you have unlimited resources in Christ because he paid the ransom to set you free to a life of service and slavery to him. That's why we come to this table. Because not only has he ransomed you, but he feeds you. He feeds you. The king brings you to his table. Slaves get honored in this kingdom. They get priority and special status by this king who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to your table today, having been spoken to you by your word, we come as needy people, prideful people, but your people, your ransomed people, your precious people. And so, God, we pray, help us, oh, help us to walk in the freedom of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.